Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I don't know if you've seen this image from South Florida. Mike is going to pull it up on the screen for us. South Florida, a couple months ago, a hotel or a condo kind of collapsed. And the investigation's ongoing. You know, there's a lot of speculation about the causes. And, but years before the collapse, a New York Times article kind of highlighted the things that were happening. Uh, years before the collapse, inspectors had identified significant cracks in the concrete around the base of the, of the hotel. And also, there were several witnesses that somehow miraculously survived. Uh, that noticed a, a, a sinkhole that formed right underneath the pool of the condominium. And so right moments before this whole hotel collapses, that basically it seems that the, the foundation had, had just given way, that the foundation had become compromised, cracked, leaking water and everything else. And it was catastrophic for those that were involved. I share this this morning because I wonder if our foundation might also be compromised. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, he talks about two people, who, one who builds their house upon the rock and one who builds his house upon the sand. And what happens is that if we build our spiritual lives on sand, we are susceptible to the rain and wind and storms of life. That's Jesus' point in Matthew 7. Here's the question then we have. Have you felt compromised in the last 15 months? If you're honest with yourself and the integrity of your own heart, have you felt soft and weak? Have you felt kind of compromised in your foundation in these last 15 months? Perhaps we've been a bit weathered by the storm, right? Pandemic, race relation issues, rioting, a tense national election, economic turmoil, rising inflation. All of these things have pressured us, haven't they? And what's happening is I'm kind of looking at this. I see no shortage of men who describe a life. And this is what they say to me. They, they come and they say, I just, I just want to go and move to a desert island. Or I want to go and move to a mountain where no one is. I've had that happen on multiple occasions. Our local state representative, Jenna Powell, noted that uh, in July of last year, that suicide calls to local authorities here were up 250%. I told our elders coming out of November and December of 2020 that we would likely see an uptick in pastoral care issues, and that has been the case. Andy Crouch has widely, wisely stated uh, that we'll be dealing with the spiritual ramifications of the last 15 months for some 20 years in the future. And can I humbly suggest that the common factor in all these cracks in the foundation is not a political problem, It's not an economic problem. It's not a societal problem. Fundamentally, what we have is a spiritual problem. Years ago, in the 1980s, Christian Smith set out to kind of summarize American religion. And he came up with this statement. He said, uh, religion or Christianity in America is really summarized by three different terms. It's moralistic, therapeutic, deism. It's moralistic. It's about uh, doing what's right. It worries about the length of your skirt, and it worries about what you do on Friday nights. 
It's therapeutic. It makes you feel better about yourself. It wants you to, to be at peace with yourself. It's deistic. It has a notion of God, but that God is far off and has no knowledge of me or interaction with my world. See, when the wind and the rain of 2020 hit, the foundation wouldn't hold. And many of us are still feeling awash, carried away by the currents of politics or conspiracy or whatever else it may be. And this morning, we come to a passage where Peter offers us something different. He offers us something to kind of put roots down, to build a foundation upon. Peter invites us to consider nothing short of a God-man, Jesus Christ. God himself taking on human flesh. And this opening chapter will set a foundation for the remainder of this letter and for our lives too. It tells us of God's divine power that has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Like he said in chapter 1, verse 3, And it goes on and it presses into this idea that his precious promises are able to make us partakers of the divine nature. You want to talk about wind and rain that won't affect us. It's when we put down our roots into the deity of Christ, when we become partakers of God's divine nature through the resurrection of Jesus, through faith in Christ. And so Peter today presents us with a God-man, veiled in flesh but fully glorious. And I want to invite us this morning to stop, to put away all of the things that are distracting us, that are pressing upon our minds, all of the cultural issues, and invite us to consider a glorified Christ. Because I sense that it's the thing we need more than anything else in the world. It's to that end that I want to pray. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray now that you would remove all distractions that you would speak via your Spirit to us as individuals, that we would sense and know the Lordship of your Son, Jesus Christ, more clearly, more definitely. And that as you work in our hearts and our souls, Lord, that we would be stable in our faith. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. I want to invite you to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. See, what we're going to see this morning is that Christian hope hangs upon God's revelation of himself. That as God reveals himself, particularly in the person of Christ, that becomes the basis of our hope together. And he wants to do this in kind of two phases. Verses 16 through 18, we're going to see that Peter was witness to Jesus' majesty, that he saw with his eyes, heard with his ears, the person of Jesus Christ in a particular instant that he wants to draw our attention to. And then secondly, in verses 19 through 21, that we have the prophet's word confirmed. We'll see the interplay between those two things. Let's start off with our first point. Peter was witness to Jesus' majesty. He says in verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's Peter talking about? 
Well, first, before we kind of get into this, I just want to highlight the movement of this passage where Peter highlights his presence with Jesus in this particular instant. First, in verse 16, he was oh, eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. He saw it with his own eyes, right? You don't have to watch many cop shows before they talk about having an eyewitness, right? He saw it with his own eyes. He was present. His, you know, senses saw the glorification of Jesus. Secondly, he says that he heard God's voice in verses 17 and 18. He heard this voice born from heaven, verse 18. It wasn't just an eyewitness. He actually heard the confirmation with his ears. And that's not all. He tells us that he was with Jesus. And the second part of verse 18, he says, we were with him on the holy mountain. And so here's the question. What did Peter see and hear and was present with? What did he sense when he was there with Jesus? It's interesting to note that in this section, Peter just assumes our familiarity with what exactly he's talking about. He doesn't kind of unpack the story, but he's thinking of a particular instant, a particular moment in time. That moment is recorded for us in Matthew 17 and other places amongst the Gospels. Peter, James, and John, they go on a hike up a high mountain, and they go with Jesus. And as Jesus is praying, he's transfigured in front of them, Luke 9 tells us. That, that is, his face shone like the sun, as Matthew says, and his clothes became a dazzling white, as Luke says. Not only that, Jesus is talking with two dead guys, Moses and Elijah, the prophets from the Old Testament. Jesus is there having a conversation. In the midst of this, Peter sees it, he takes it all in, and he doesn't know what to say. In fact, Mark highlights this, that he's kind of without words. Matthew 17, he finally speaks up and he says, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. See, Peter wants to treat all three of these men equally. He's got Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and he wants to build all of them tents, right? He's running around like the servant, just trying to fix everything for everybody. And just in that moment, that's when the cloud rolls in, the glory cloud rolls in, and a voice speaks to Peter, and it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is different than Elijah. Jesus is different than Moses. He's the one who the Father is well pleased with. And so, God clears the deck of all of Peter's assumptions to say, this is the Son of God. He's different than the prophets that went before him. He's different than the pastors and teachers that will come after him. He is the Lord. He's the one that's sent from my presence, who's taken on flesh. He's deity incarnate for you. So Peter writes with this event in mind, and that's what he tells us. He saw the majesty of Christ in verse 16. He saw Jesus transfigured, glorified, that he witnesses this transformation that Jesus returns to his natural self. He heard the Father's endorsement in verse 17. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the sum total of all of this is that Peter is testifying to his experience of Jesus' deity. As we kind of take this passage in, it starts with, with Peter's eyes and his ears. And those eyes and ears become our eyes and ears. 
So that what Peter saw, we see. Peter used physical organs like pupils and retinas. He used uh, ear canals and, and the cochlea. I had to look that one up, right? He used these natural organs that God gave him, but we perceive these things in our hearts as the Spirit brings conviction and life to us. Peter saw with his eyes. He heard with his ears. But you and I see with the quiet person inside of us, the inner person of our heart. See, this morning, everything less than this view of what Jesus or what Peter describes about Jesus is a myth. Isn't that Peter's concern? There in verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. When we get into chapter 2, we're going to see all these myth givers. All these false prophets, all these false teachers that want to peddle false words about Jesus Christ. Peter's here to say, no, this is the real deal. This is the real Christ. And anything that falls short of this vision of Jesus, glorified, honored, glorious, righteous, worthy of praise, falls woefully short of who he is in his person. See, we might be tempted to make Jesus less than he is. We might see him as a a good teacher, a moral person, a revolutionary. But if he's anything less than the glorified Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, or if he's anything less than the one who sits at the right hand of the Father making uh, atonement for us or pleading his own work on our behalf, it's not the real Jesus See, Jesus is deity in the flesh. Peter's telling us that this thing he reports isn't a fairy tale. It's not folklore. It's not something that he just made up. This is something for you and I to bank our life upon. It's the foundation on which we want to build. It's in light of this and what Peter says that there's two things that we can say. Of all the truth that we can know, Jesus is the most true. And of all the truth that we can know, Jesus is the most pertinent. Start with that first one. Of all the things that we can know, Jesus is most true. This understanding of a God-man, Jesus, is, is absolutely true. He is more real than gravity or weather patterns or psychology or political theory or anything else. He pre-existed any of those things. He spoke those things into existence, and he will continue to exist long after they are gone. Therefore, Jesus is more real than any knowledge we could know. He's also more pertinent Of all the things we can know, Jesus Christ is most pertinent. There is nothing more necessary to your life than Jesus right now. Even the oxygen that you breathe is not as pertinent to your life and well-being as the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You need Him more than water and food and oxygen and friendship and family and love or whatever else we might see. You need a risen Christ because your greatest need your unrighteousness before the throne of God that will separate you from God for eternity. Your greatest need is grace from an all-knowing, all-gracious, all-loving God. And grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. See, therefore, Jesus is more true and more pertinent than any truth you and I could know. But Peter's vision 
as he kind of unpacks it later in the verse, Peter's vision isn't the best seat in the house. Now, what Peter is telling us is that our view is better than his. Our view in the 21st century, as we have the the fullness of the Scriptures right here before us, is actually better than the front row seat of the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what Peter's pushing us toward. See, our post-resurrection view shows us the deity deity of Jesus with crystal clarity. What Peter saw in black and white TV screens, we see in full color, high definition. I'm sure there's something more modern that I don't know about, but yeah. See, the second point we get to is that we have the words, uh, the, the words of the prophets confirmed. This is what he says in, in verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. See, what Peter tells us is that we have to pay attention to the prophetic words. Maybe you're like me, and every time you hear the word prophecy, your eyes just kind of roll into the back of your head, and you immediately get bored, right? You hear the word prophecy, and everyone wants to talk to revelation charts and everything else that's going on, and you just want to check out and go watch Netflix or something, right? But what Peter's telling us is it's actually life-giving for us to know about these prophecies that were given about Christ. That's what he says. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That is, you and I have the privilege of latter history. We can look back and we can see that Isaiah 53 spoke clearly about the person Jesus Christ, that Jeremiah 31 actually tells us about a new covenant with Israel that was going to happen. And we can look back and see with clarity what's happening in those passages. Peter tells us that we do well to pay attention to this prophetic word because it's like a lamp in a dark place. Ever try and walk into a dark bedroom? My wife and I have this opposite rhythm. She goes to bed at 7.30 p.m., right? I go to bed at like 11. And so I'm constantly walking into this pitch black room There may be a child somewhere in there, and if I step on them, I have two others, you know. The recognition is that that walking into a dark place, everything's hidden, everything's covered over. We can't discern what's going on. And what Peter is telling us is that this, this word, this prophetic word about Christ is a lamp in a dark place. It's not the scriptures themselves, it's specifically the prophecies about Jesus. They, they bring illumination to the world. They're a lens through which we see everything that brings clarity and definition to what we have going on amongst us. See, while our hearts are prone to wander, as we sang this morning, while we are given to all kinds of false information, while we're given to bits of propaganda and advertising, that we're given to the latest movement and trend, the Scripture brings true clarity and wisdom to God's people. Notice the progression that, that Peter gives us. Right now, we are to pay attention to the prophecies, what he says in verse 19, uh, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And you're left with me, with me kind of saying, what the heck is a morning star? A morning star, as I understand it, is Actually, the planet Venus, it's the, uh, for nine months out of every 19 months, it rises as the last thing in the evening sky before the sun rises. For nine months, 
every year, Venus rises first and it kind of awakens the dawn as it would. It shows us that the sun is coming, that there's something better on the horizon. And what we're waiting for is the return of this glorified, honored Jesus. What we're waiting for is to see Jesus Christ riding on the clouds as Revelation promises us, that he would return, that he would restore justice and righteousness to his earth. But Peter saw with his eyes the glorified, unfurled deity of Christ. We all will see someday, all of us around the world, Christian and non-Christian alike. The book of Revelation specifically calls Jesus the morning star. And what we're waiting for is this return of the person of Christ. Now look at where where Peter goes next. In verses 20 through 21, he gives us this full-throated endorsement of the Scriptures themselves. He turns from the return of Jesus, the the light, light lighting up the dark, our future hope in Christ, and he turns our attention back to our present day reading of God's words. Look at what he says in verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, Peter tells us that what we need to know is that this, first of all, the Scripture is not the matter of someone's own interpretation. It's what he says in verse 20. And in verse 21, uh, Peter gives us the prophetic process, right? Men spoke from God. That is, God uses human authorship. That's why the books in the Bible are named things like John and Mark. And we have apostles like Peter and Paul that spoke on behalf of God. And God was using these men to record uh, his words to individual churches and people. So God uses human authorships. He uses their individual gifting and abilities, even as limited as it was. Right now we're reading an epistle written by a fisherman. When we crack open the book of Luke, we see Luke's you know, meticulous nature as a doctor. We see it uh, throughout the books of Luke and Acts. And we, we see when we, uh, when we read Paul, we see the, the, the specific arguments that he makes because of his tutelage in the Sanhedrin and as a Pharisee. See, God allowed the voice and personality of these men to be used for his purpose. That's not it. Men spoke from God but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's not just a bunch of guys sitting down writing writing letters, pen pals, writing back and forth. These men are moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is, uh, they weren't just the words of men. They were wrought in some way by the Spirit's work in and through these human authors so that the Spirit himself mystically worked in Paul and Luke and Peter to give us the letters and the Gospels that we have today. Isn't it astounding that what Peter saw with his eyes, the the glory of Jesus Christ, unveiled, unfurled as it were, is now matched with what we have right here in this book. Isn't that what Peter's telling us? You don't have to be on the Mount of Transfiguration to see glory. It's recorded right here for us. That these prophecies are more confirmed than they used to be. 
See, here's what stands out to me. The, the word that Peter uses that in verse 21, he says that we're carried along. These men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the same word he used in verses 17 and 18, that the voice was born from heaven. He's actually drawing a similitude between what he, what he heard from God about the, the affirmation of Jesus' deity and what these men are speaking from God as recorded for us in the Scriptures. See, just as the voice of God spoke and endorsed Jesus, Peter tells us the Scriptures were given by God himself through the Holy Spirit, and in no uncertain terms, saying that our beholding of God in the Scriptures is equivalent with his eyewitness experience on the mountain, if not better than his eyewitness experience on the mountain. See, this morning, we do well to pay attention to the prophetic word about Christ. It's upon you and I, it's, it's our responsibility to pay attention to the prophetic words about Jesus. It's like a lamp in the midst of our darkness. Notice what Peter tells us. The prophetic word isn't subject to human interpretation in verse 20. The prophetic word is, is not the product of human invention in verse 21. The prophetic word is brought by human authors, moved by God again in verse 21. In verse 19, it all hinges upon this, that the prophetic word is more fully confirmed. We might just stop. We might just raise an objection. Wait a minute, Peter. How could those who never saw Christ, let alone see him like Peter did, how could those people have more confirmation of the prophecies about Christ than Jesus or than Peter did? Peter just went through this whole spiel. He saw, he heard, he was with Jesus. How, how then can he say that our experience surpasses that of what's on the Mount of Transfiguration? How could Peter say that we have better confirmation than he did on that mountain on that day in Matthew 17? You've got to dig into these words, what it means in verse 19. What does it mean for us to have the word more fully confirmed? See, the word is more fully confirmed by Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension, his intercession on behalf of, of, of men and women who trust in him. See, Jesus' sacrificial death confirmed the Old Testament prophecies, right? You all hear, have heard Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Jesus was literally pierced in the side, even though it was recorded by Isaiah some hundreds of years before it actually happened. Jesus quotes Psalm 22 from, from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that whole psalm kind of lays out something like the crucifixion that men gather around the psalmist and they mock him. And it reminds us as we look at the cross, reminds us of the death of Jesus. Jesus' powerful resurrection affirms the scriptures. Psalm 16 tells us that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption, or some translate it decay. And the New Testament authors are constantly borrowing from this passage to prove that this was God's design all along. Hosea 6, uh, Hosea the prophet writes, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Is it coincidence that he uses three days 
Jesus' ascension and intercession was spoken of in the Old Testament. Isaiah 52, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. So God was constantly showing us throughout the Old Testament who this person of Christ would be so that when it happened, we would have the confirmation that this was God's plan all along. What it comes to is this sum total realization that our hope hangs on this revealed Christ. If we want to be anchored, if we want to have a solid foundation, we build upon the life of Jesus Christ. What we need most in a topsy-turvy world is a clear view of the glory of Jesus Christ. I wonder if we've lost that. Too many times as we gather, and we've done it here, as we gather, as churches in the West gather, we love to circle around the things uh, that feel like they, they help us. We love to talk about, well, this truth can help your marriage, and this truth, truth can help you do this, and this thing can make you feel better. This, you know, all of these things that are just kind of based around felt needs, and we can kind of do that as a church and just kind of speak to the things that you think you need to hear about. I need to hear about my finances. I need to hear about dating and relationships. I need to hear about my marriage. I need to hear about sexuality. I need to hear about all of these things. The truth be told, what the Christian needs more than anything else is this view of Jesus Christ. Unmitigated, unyielding sense of Jesus' glory, His divinity, His righteousness, His holiness. We get that through God's Word. We might have cultural notions about who Jesus Christ is, right? We might understand certain things about Jesus. I once heard someone describe Jesus as a hippie on a donkey. Heard other people, uh, they speak about Jesus and, and they use biblical terminology, but they become very narrow. Jesus is all about love and kindness, and he's, he's there to affirm me as a person. He's kind of like a, uh, a life coach that just really helps me work through all the things that I, the problems that I have and the difficulties that I have. But what the scriptures present us with is a Jesus Christ who existed from before the foundations of the world and who will exist well beyond anything that this world provides. What the Scriptures present us with is a Jesus who's eminently loving and kind and generous and self-giving, but is also righteous and holy and will change and shape you through the power of the Spirit. What we're presented with is a Jesus who willingly lays down his life at the cross, but also is willing to confront men like the Pharisees and call them out. We're presented with a God who resurrects to save and who returns to judge. That's the Jesus of the Scriptures. And the moment we think that we have this Jesus thing all figured out, it's the moment that He wants to come alongside and reshape our understanding all over again, isn't it? So Christian... What is there to keep you from these scriptures? It's here in this book that Jesus' glory is clearly displayed. 
It's here that Peter tells us that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to give witness and bear testimony to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's here that we come and we take on the character of Christ. What is there that that stops us from doing that? And I'm throwing myself in this application too, right? What is it? Is it an early morning? Is that what stops you from, from getting into this Word? Is it a late night? What is it that stops you from reading this? Is it that it's hard to understand? It's dense and thick? What is it? To Christian, if you call yourself by that name, if you call yourself by someone who follows Christ, why not turn to the Scriptures? Why not go to the fountain and find uh, the living waters of Jesus Christ? Why not return to the books of John and and Luke and Mark and and Matthew and find the person of Christ that that worked these miracles, that, that did all of these things, that engaged men and women with compassion? Why not turn to the Scriptures and find the the God who controls the universe, who drives out demons, who stops storms with His Word? Why not turn to the Scriptures and find the resurrected, life-giving Savior Savior, Jesus Christ. Why not? Christian, it's slow going. We have to devote ourselves to years of study and, and prayer and, and, and unpacking what these things say. But I'm here to tell you that this is where we find the fullest disclosure of life in Christ. It's here in this book, not only that we see the glory of Jesus displayed, but it's also here in this book that you are transformed into the same image by the work of the Spirit. Paul has this really interesting passage in 2 Corinthians 3. And he's been talking about Moses and how Moses uh, saw God and he uh, actually had to veil his face when he came down from the mountain. And the reason he did that is because that glory faded. It actually went away over time. He would see God, and his face would shine with this Shekinah glory, and he would put a veil over his face. That's an interesting fashion move, right? But he put this veil over his face to cover the fact that his glory was fading. And at the end of this chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it's on the screen in front of us here, maybe, kind of, there we go. Paul writes this, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Here's the truth. When, when you and I behold glory, we change. Pretty simple, right? We wrap our heads around this idea of how do I change what I do? How do I become someone different? How do I actually uh, change my patterns? You've got to change what you behold. Really interesting thing happens in Psalm 115. In Psalm 115, uh, the psalmist is describing these idols. He says they have eyes to see, uh, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have hands, but they don't clap or do anything like that. And then he says those who make them will become like them. That when we worship our false gods, we actually become like that. You ever see that bear out? Like the guy that's yelling at his kid at the soccer game who's 
six years old or whatever, he has an idol in his heart that's moving him to that behavior. The person who's overworking 60, 70, 80 hours a week, they have an idol in the heart that's, that's driving them to these behaviors. The abusive husband, the runaway child, whatever else it might be, there's an idol that drives those behaviors. What Paul is telling us, that when we behold proper glory, it changes us. It changes the way we think, the way we love, the way we want, the way we desire. It changes what we think about this world and about this life. So what Peter is telling us in no undiminished terms is that we have the fullness of God's glory disclosed to us here. That his precious promises allow us to become partakers in the divine nature if we were to go back into verses 3 and 4. And that changes us eternally. If we were to go fast forward to 1 John chapter 3, John says, we don't know what we will be, but we do know that we'll be like him for, for we'll see him as he is. When we see God in his glory, we'll be transformed. When, when we see the glory of God, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another as from the Lord, the Spirit. We are being transformed when we expose ourselves to the Spirit's work in these scriptures. So again, I I posit the question to all of us in this room, what keeps you from taking up and reading? What keeps you from studying these things, from memorizing these things, from hanging your life upon these scriptures themselves? Because I wonder if we might be more grounded and, and founded upon the foundation that God has given us in Christ. That doesn't start with our knowledge of the scriptures. So that when the wind and the waves come upon us, we can stand our ground. I want to pray to this end that God makes us people of his word. That he allows us to uh, identify the true glory of Christ, not be given to myths, but instead be given to his powerful, resurrected son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that you would accomplish that very thing. That you would glorify your name in our midst as we respond to your words, as we hear from you, as we respond to you in faith. Lord, allow us to be men and women who hang upon the words that you've given us in Christ, that hang upon the words that you've brought to us by your Spirit. Allow us to, to trust and delight in them to build our foundation upon them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.